Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to Preconceived, where we examine the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and the paradigms by which we live our lives. Hey everybody, I'm Zale Mednick and welcome to another episode of Preconceived. In the typical preconceived framework in which we tend to view our lives, there are many steps. Growing up, getting an education, having relationships, finding a job, getting married, having kids, becoming grandparents, and eventually retiring. But in recent years, many have come to question what retirement really means and what it entails. One guest on the show previously remarked, I don't even understand what retirement really is. Sometimes I almost think it refers to retiring from life. So what exactly is retirement? And does society's concept of retirement ultimately limit us in our endeavors when we get older? Or is retirement a natural progression in life, representing a point of financial independence where we can still be just as active, but perhaps proceed with less concern about still making money? I'm joined today by George Georgian. George is founder of The Dare Method, helping retirees find a new beginning. He's authored 11 books, including his latest book, Dare to Discover Your Purpose, which shows baby boomers that retirement doesn't have to be disappointment and gives them the tools, confidence, and a blueprint to make the most of later life. George is a retirement transition coach, mindset mentor, best-selling author, international speaker, and Emmy award-winning producer. All right, George Georgian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Delighted to be on, Zale. This really fits with the concept of preconceived and how it was initially framed as a podcast, examining each of the steps we take in our lives that can often feel like they're the status quo and that we're going through the motions. And retirement's a topic I've been hoping to do for a long time. So I'm so excited to chat about this. What initially got you interested in this space, so to speak, writing about it, talking about it, and being a coach about retirement? I think it must. I have to go back to an event in my life that changed the course of my life. And I, I call that the perfect storm. Three unrelated events coming together and creating a perfect storm. And the first one was we got a phone call saying that my wife's father had a stroke and was in hospital, so we had to dash to see him. In the meantime, this was January 2007, right? All these three things happened in one month in 2007, January. The next bit was we had to downsize. So we were trying to pack and, you know, send things to storage and send things to our new place because we were selling. And so we're in the turmoil of moving homes. Then there's a family issue here of my, my wife's father having the stroke. And I had to have a colonoscopy 
I was down for a colonoscopy. So I go to have my colonoscopy checked. And so they do an MRI as well. And in the process of doing the MRI, they discover that there's a, a, a sort of a large eggplant-sized tumor sitting on my pelvis. So, you know, that was kind of like a bit of a shock. You know, you go in for a colonoscopy and discover something else. But I had to see an oncologist the next day, literally, because they said it's an emergency. So I went in with my wife and my brother, who's a doctor. And the oncologist, who must have been less than 40 years old, said in 98% of cases, bone tumors are secondary cancer, which means it's spread throughout your body, which means we can't do anything. And so you're looking at maybe six months of life. So that's like a really big thing to take in. And uh, my feeling at that point, if I can just express it, was me coming out of my body and looking at myself and going, he's not talking about me, he's talking about you. You know, dissociate yourself from the diagnosis, right? Yeah. And so, but he said that, you know, so that's in 98% of cases. And he said, it will need about three weeks of tests to ensure that we've got the right diagnosis. So for three weeks, whilst I was undergoing tests, I was having strange feelings about my life up to then and what's in store for me. And I'm thinking, crikey, I had not planned for this. This was not in my plans. You know, is this, yeah, is this even negotiable, God? <laughs> you know, can we do a deal? Can we strike a deal here? You know, you kind of go through all this sort of conversations. And, uh, and I'd wake up in the morning and look at the sunrise over the river and go, geez, how many of those sunrises am I going to see? It's so beautiful. I don't really want to go yet. But what was really killing me was that I had two teenage daughters. And what was killing me that was that I wasn't going to be around for them as they embarked on their journey in life. That was, that was the hard bit. Anyway, three weeks later, I go back and the oncologist says, I've got some good news and some bad news. Good news is you belong to the 2% club. <laughs> That's pretty good news. That was great news. And uh, he said, the bad news is, is that it's a very aggressive tumor. And so we need to operate to get it out. And because it's big and it's part of your pelvis, because the tumor has come out of the pelvis, it's one single giant cell just gone berserk. And he said, we have to operate and there's arteries leading to it. So it's two operations, which means we need one operation to, to cauterize the, the arteries so that there's no, there isn't the bloodbath. And the second one is to remove the tumor. And that means you may have to have a hip replacement, which means you're looking at six months of convalescence. That's the bad news. I go, that's all good news for me. <laughs> I can take that. You know, that's a, that's a good outcome. So that's where the, the story starts as to, you know, what I did next, because what do you do next? Well, most people kind of retire after this point, because you're thinking, what am I going to do with my life? I want to sit back now, go back to the drawing board, assess what's important for me and what's not important. And believe you me, I'd been doing things which were not really that important. And I was worrying about those things. It's amazing how death can actually put 
a proper perspective on on life and how you lead it. So cut a long story short, I semi-retired for 10 years. What had you been doing beforehand? Oh, I was involved. I was a partner in a commercial real estate venture in New Jersey, near the Princeton area for 30 years. I was a silent partner, but I was part of the strategic team. So I was involved on a kind of weekly basis, if you like. And I'm a writer. I've written 11 books. I was also in marketing. But the the, the long and short of it was that semi-retirement, because I was involved with other things, I got into the situation of trying to declutter my life so that I could re-pivot. And I found myself after the first 18 months of retirement that this isn't what I expected. It's not that great a place to be. You know, the first 12 to 18 months is fun because you've, you, you're, you're cutting out all the stuff that you don't like and you start doing the things that you think you like and you will enjoy, but you're filling time. And there's a big difference between being passionate about what you want to do, where you lose all sense of time, look at the relationship with time here, as opposed to being free to do whatever you like, but getting bored and listless and then trying to fill time. So kind of that difference, correct me if I'm wrong, of the excitement portion of I've got my whole life ahead of me now. I'm coming out with a new view of my life because I've just had this bout of cancer and I've contemplated my mortality. And I come out with this excitement about what can I do in the planning stage is almost more exciting to an extent than, well, once you've made those plans and you're living the day-to-day of filling your time, those are two different states to an extent. The planning and anticipation versus the living it. Yeah, true. Yes, But I think additionally, it's that we have these, and I love, that's why I love the title of your podcast, preconceived ideas about what retirement is and what it's not. And that these preconceived ideas are, are things that have been fed into us. Most people go into retirement, they have no clue what they're getting into. They, all they worry about, and in a certain sense, Financial services has been partially responsible, and I would say advertising as well, where they have populated our heads with ideas and feelings which are not real. And, you know, I how do I know this? Because I studied what retirement is. I studied what retirement is from a historical point of view. In the Western world, at least, the first kind of notion of retirement started with Caesar Augustus who decided that the one way to ensure the imperial Roman army would be on his side. And remember, this guy had trauma. His uncle, Julius Caesar, was assassinated in the Senate. So this guy wants to make sure the army's going to be on side. Otherwise, it's his neck. So what does he do? He puts six million sesterce, Roman dollars, (laughs) into a fund that would provide pension not just to the officers, but to the soldiers. The officers also got land in the periphery of the empire, which was a dangerous place to be, obviously. The hostiles are there. But 
these Romans would use the local farmers to farm and give them a percentage. So they kind of indentured slavery around the empire to make sure that everybody is on the take. So two Caesars later, that fund was depleted because the Roman Senate could, you know, with lots of debts and things to pay off, started borrowing against the pension fund. Fast forward to today, it's like the social security system in the US and elsewhere, which has been depleted because governments have been borrowing against it and printing money. So I studied retirement to find out how this concept of retirement came about. And when, you, when I looked through it, it then resurfaced again it probably sort of disappeared after the Roman Empire, but it resurfaced again in the 1850s. The railroads in the United States started creating pensions to retain the workforce. Golden handcuffs. And then, of course, New York City created the first police pension fund, The municipal, then the municipal workers. And then in Germany, Otto von Bismarck introduced it because he was scared that the German people were too attracted to Marxism. So he appealed to their sense of insecurity about the future. So he created a pension to pay individuals over the age of 65, I believe, maybe even more, when life expectancy was 58. Wow. So a good seven years above life expectancy, ensuring that only a certain small percentage would receive a pension because most would have kicked the bucket before reaching it. Now that's a smart move because that allows, <laughs> that allows the system to work and not get depleted. Fast forward to today, if we used Bismarck's rule, right? If it was politically acceptable, which it's not, if it was politically acceptable, if you could get voted in for doing it, that would be the way to do it. And that would give you a different number. Today, life expectancy in the US and the United Kingdom is 83 at the last count. 83 plus seven is 90. So technically, using Bismarck's rule, retirement today should be at the age of 90. Given that most of us, at least even in the baby boomer generation, are going to live to 90 and beyond. Also given the paradox that any one of us can die before then, right? <laughs> Life is a paradox. But most are going to get reach the age of 90 and beyond. And so it's not such an alien idea that people should retire at 90. But try sell that to the population. And in France, they recently did try to sell that to the population, and it did pass, where they raised the retirement age by, I believe, two years, just to 64. But here's the point, though. That's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, as opposed to moving the damn ship out of that iceberg area. Mm -hmm. But people don't think, right? And the electorate gets the leaders it deserves, Right. You, if you don't want to hear something, and that goes to each of us as individuals, if you don't use your intelligence and your reason um, to solve problems, and you're always using politics of 
just getting people elected. So just tell the people what they want to hear. And you know now, when people stop thinking, what happens? Polarization. Inject fear into the population. People stop to think. They now emote. And that's what we've got today, because people are not thinking. So here's the thing, though, right? This retirement issue, right, for intelligent people is, you know that when the circumstances change, when the facts on the ground change, you change your opinion or you change your judgment on the thing. But we like to say, oh, no, we're, we're people of principle. We believe in this pension thing. We believe that pensions are sacrosanct. It's like an individual right. It should be in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Really? Well, if everybody's going to get a pension, push the age up to 90 if you want to make it workable. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What in your mind is that image that people have of retirement? Because people tend to have, you said, this idea of what retirement looks like. And I have my idea, but you said that it didn't jive with what you felt it would be like. And a lot of the people who are waiting for age 65 or whatever that age currently is, whether or not that should change, what do you think they are viewing that retirement period as? And where do you think the misconception about how they'll experience it factors in? Okay, that's a really, really good question, Zale. Here's how it goes, at least from my perspective and my experience. Retirement is sold as a panacea, right? You reach the age of 65, they give you pink rose glasses and they tell you it's all going to be hunky-dory this this way forward right now i haven't seen barbie the film but i suspect it's kind of pinky and 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 wonderful and glossy and you know it's bubble gum and it's beautiful okay well that's not what retirement is that's a vacation in florida two very different things right and people retire from their work but they don't retire from life Life goes on, right? And I even, you know, I mean, I've studied this in depth. I mean, Einstein said, if you want solutions to any problems, look at nature. So I started to ask the question, what retires in nature? Nothing. It's either growing or dying. So why do we as humans think that we are an exception when we are part of nature? And so, you know, we've got this idea that retirement is nirvana and we slog at work that we hate in the anticipation of reaching retirement and then everything's going to be glorious. Well, my message to you is wake up. Every day is a lifetime. We don't know if we're going to be around tomorrow. Don't mortgage your present for a future that may never come. Focus on what you love to do, right? And people go, yeah, but that doesn't make me money. Hey, hello, what's the point of making money if you're miserable? Isn't the point of living 
to enjoy the moment, to be in the moment, because that's all we've got. Yesterday was yesterday's moment if you were in there. And if you were not in yesterday's moment, you've lost it. It's gone. You are now in the moment. And when you come to the future, that future will be in the moment. Again, I believe it was Einstein said, time collapses into the pre into one, into the present. So if you're not happy with your life today, how do you think you're going to be happy tomorrow? So what I would say is, if you're not happy today, find something that makes you happy. Find something where you lose all sense of time in because you're enjoying yourself. Maybe you don't make as much money as you were making before. But who cares if you're happy and you're enjoying yourself and you're with a group of people that you enjoy serving and it makes you feel good. So do you reject the idea, and granted, this show is not black and white by any means. It's gray and it varies per person and there's so many different levels. It's on a spectrum. But do you reject the idea if somebody says, you know what? I'm going to be in a job that I'm okay with. I don't love it, but I'm going to do it until I'm 65 and I have kind of the financial security that I think I need, whether that's true or whether that is based on some preconceived notion. And then after 65, I'm going to indulge in some other projects. I'm going to look at it maybe as a retirement from that job that served a couple purposes, one of which was eventual financial independence. And then I'm going to move on to hobbies or, or more than hobbies, a new project that maybe does make money, but not as much. Would you say that that is, in your mind, not a great approach because you've spent those 30, 35 years in a job that you're, you're not super happy in? Because many people would probably say, listen, I, I hear what you're saying, George, and I want to be doing something that I love. But the reality of life is we don't always find a job that is analogous to our passion. And one of the realities of life is that we've got to just make money somehow. Sometimes it isn't via our passion, and that's okay. You can still find meaning other ways. But then once I officially retire, quote unquote, I can still do other things, not even just golfing or having that Florida vacation, but indulging on those new projects. Or would you say, well, no, you've just wasted 30, 35 years because you should have been enjoying your passion. That's a, a clunky question, but I hopefully the point comes across. Yes, the point comes across. So let me dive straight into the meat. Financial security. Right? That's always the excuse for people not doing what they should and want to do. And I would say to you that the whole concept of financial security is an illusion. And the numbers speak. Let me explain. Charles Schwab came out with the number. The, the number was $2 million. They said that to retire with this kind of a, a moderate retirement, you need a nest egg of $2 million. That was pre-COVID, pre-Trump, pre-Ukraine. I don't know what the number would be today if they had to put a number to it, right? With the inflation and everything. But so here's the thing. Let's use $2 million. So just go on Google and find out how many Americans, what percentage of Americans have a nest egg of $2 million. I Googled it. It came up to 3 4%. So here's my thing. I reckon that 90% of Americans and perhaps more, but I'm being conservative, 90% of Americans do not have a nest egg. 
to retire at 65 and continue living even poorly until the age of 90 and beyond. Mm. They just do not have it. So this financial independence notion is an illusion. You drill down a little bit more and it gets even more precarious. The mean savings of an American, and I use Americans because Americans have the data for this. Elsewhere, they probably do or they don't. I don't know, but they don't offer it. The mean savings of an American is $134,000. How many years of retirement do you think you can live on with $134,000 of retirement savings or any savings for that matter? Not a lot. Especially as you've pointed out with, with clearly the life expectancy increase. Well, well, this is my point. So people are walking around with an old map in their heads. The new map tells them, first of all, retire the word retirement from your lexicon. It ain't going to work. And it's certainly not going to work for boomers who are going to be retiring, but it's certainly not going to work for anybody younger than them. So the word retirement is thankfully going to disappear because actually there are some serious issues with retirement that people don't look at, don't address, don't even know, which I will touch on in a second. And and before I forget, let me just say on that point that just like the first casualty in war is the truth because of propaganda, the first casualty in retirement is our identity. Who are we? That question, who am I now that I'm retired from the job? Because a job or a profession forms part of who we are, becomes part of our identity, becomes part of how we see ourselves, not just how we portray ourselves to the world, but how we see ourselves. And when that job is gone, and also the social interaction in that, the question becomes, who am I? That has a serious impact if it's not addressed pretty immediately. And I say immediately, like within a year or so, because there are mental health issues and emotional health issues attached to not knowing who you are. I know, for example, on my own person, on my own skin, on my own feelings and mental health issues, you start to lose confidence in yourself you start to lose self-esteem and self-worth. And there's elements of shame that come in with retirement because who, you know, this who are you thing. And we know from Professor Teresa Amabile of Harvard University who did studies on this and particularly on identity bridging. So when you ask retired people what they do, they'll tell you I'm a retired lawyer or I'm a retired accountant or a retired librarian or a retired janitor. They'll never say I'm just retired. They've got to throw in what they used to be to give themselves a semblance of self-esteem. So you can see the identity is a very deep one. And I mean, I, I did a survey in just during the pandemic in 2020, 2021, over a 12 month period using Facebook, I used a survey which was couched as a quiz, nine questions, some demographic, some psychographic. One of the pivotal questions was, what is the single biggest challenge you have in retirement? And 
35,000 people came in and answered the first question. And they dropped out in between, but 20, over 21,000 responded all nine question, questions. So I've got a nice database here of responses. 50% said health issues. 35% said outliving their savings. And 15% wow. said aimlessness. Two questions later, I tweaked that question and said to them, if you had a magic wand or words to that effect, if you had a magic wand, what would you change? And 50% said health issues again, addressing those. This time, 36% said finding a new purpose. And the rest was financial, 14% or whatever it was. So it was an interesting change. When you give people agency, they know what to do. But I realized that I'd ticked all the boxes. I'd asked people what they wanted. The people gave me their answer. Not in my head. They gave me their answer. But there was something in me that felt I'm missing something here. And I only realized what that was when I came across a quote from Henry Ford, who said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Mm. Ding, my aha moment. I realized I'm chasing the wrong beast here. People don't know what they don't know. So I had to go back to the drawing board. And that's what brought me to the identity issue. What's the first hurdle? that you have to deal with. And most people go into retirement, they're chasing other things. They're not even realizing that the issue they have at hand is, who am I? So these mental health and emotional health issues, okay? And I'm no expert, I'm no psychologist or psychiatrist here, okay? This is just plain common sense. When you're dealing with issues of who am I, self-worth and stuff, and you know that's a downward spiral, lack of confidence, lack of self-esteem, lack of this, and then shame kicks in. And beyond shame, you, you start going to withdrawal. You know, you withdraw from public because you just don't really want to be facing people, having to explain, you know, what a useless person you are now to society. I mean, you know, those are the real feelings you harbor. You know, whether you've got $14 million in your IRA and stuff and, and going on vacations, golf in Florida, and, and whatever it is, luxury uh, boating cruises and whatever, you're still coming back feeling pretty low. So, George, you said a lot of really fascinating things there, and there's a couple points I want to come back to. One is this idea of disillusionment, that you've given a pretty good case why a lot of people who are looking at retirement become disillusioned because once they get to retirement, they're not actually able to afford the retirement that they might have been imagining, let alone whether that retirement they were imagining they had been romanticizing in the first place and was never actually going to live up to it because it detached them from their sense of purpose. And one thing that, as you alluded to and explained, which has been shown repeatedly, is that our purpose is one of the most important things tied into our happiness. And purpose is often so related to our career path. When you see somebody who has retired or who is the, in the process of retiring, at that point, is it 
I don't want to say it's too late because that's that's too negative, and I, I don't believe anything is too late. No. But is is your thought that it would be much easier for people to develop a better sense of purpose, maybe not so intertwined with their job or career earlier on in life, and that that might be easier than telling somebody who's 65 and retiring from a job that they were meh-meh on, okay, now we need to kind of redefine your purpose. Does the problem basically start earlier in when we're younger, choosing a career that we anticipate we're going to stay with for so long until we get retired? Yeah, I mean, yes, logically the answer is yes. But I'm living proof that you can reach the age of 60 and still not know what you're doing, okay? And it's only now that I've really sort of discovered my purpose and its events. But that said, everything that happened to me prior to this has added to the skill sets, knowledge, wisdom, and everything else that encompasses who I am now. So I wouldn't say, and this is another thing, you know, we're so prone to judging people and judging ourselves even harshly. Stop judging. Judging is a terrible thing, right? The, everybody has a journey in life and everybody's journey is unique. And it's kind of sacred. And almost I would say to you is, you don't want to be looking at what Johnny and Andy and Sarah or whoever else is doing something and you go, oh, that's amazing. I'd like to do that. No, you've got your own mission in life. You've got your own journey. Don't look at other people, okay? That's their journey, and you don't know how that journey is. You've no idea the pain that somebody that you're looking up to is enduring. You've no idea the demons that they're fighting, and you've no idea whether they are going to be staying at that altitude for long. So my point is, is that everybody's on a journey, and you need to look inside. You need to go on what I call an inventure. You need to go on an adventure on the inside. Discover who you are. You are not who you think you are. Who you think you are is the portrayal, you know, of the, the strongest aspects of yourself that you've created over a lifetime to show people how important, how intelligent, how bright, how strong you are, how sexy you are. And the thing is, is that, you know, on your deathbed, none of this shit matters. It matters, you know, how did you feel in your life? What did you do with your life? So those people who know exactly what they really love to do from an early age, I mean, you would imagine that's probably a good thing. But on one hand, it might not be a good thing because you don't really explore other avenues because you already know everything. You know what you want, you know. And I suppose that's a journey for that kind of person. But I would not compare or judge how somebody lives. You know, you can see... Let me, let me just explain this. In all walks of life, you have your challenges. People think that if you make so much money, all your worries and concerns are going to go. That's rubbish. You start having serious money, you've got serious problems. Who do you trust? Where do you put your money? Sleepless nights. You can't enjoy that money because you're worrying about it. And if you're a CEO or you're in the C-level, 
right? Where you're making shed loads of money, you've got huge amounts of retirement money. Guess what happens to you when you retire? The biggest problem is that it's the identity issue. And the higher you are, the worse it is when you come down because it's like, it's an ego death, right? So if you're not very high up in the totem pole, when you fall, you ain't gonna hurt yourself so bad. Changing identity is not gonna be a massive issue. But if your pay package is $5 million or $10 million, or in the case of some people, $200 million, when you retire, the next day, that cuts off. Sure, you have a nice pension, but now you're not earning what you used to. So in your mind, oh, my God, difficult times are ahead for me. <laughs> difficult times. Difficult and you know times. what? It is painful for them. Massively painful. Because it's all relative. It's everything is relative. And that and that, that's why for me, comparison is a terrible, terrible way to go around looking in life because it stops you from living your own life. And your, your own life can be wonderful if you just let it unfurl. I, I've heard before comparison is the enemy of happiness. And that to me has really resonated as I contemplate my own life. What is some of the advice you give to somebody who who is in that stage where they've been in a job as many people have for 30 35 years and they are saying i'd like to leave this job whether they call it a retirement or they don't mm -hmm. how do you help people navigate that so that they can still maintain that purpose and they can still not be trapped by that illusion of what retirement is but retire in a way that will be more fulfilling for them and not get them trapped in this cycle of of unhappiness really right okay the first answer of course is i have a course an eight-week online course right one is digital and it's very economic because i don't personally get involved live it's all pre-recorded material exercises and you ultimately end up with a one-page blueprint so that gives you something to work with i also have a live course which is much more expensive, but that's 90 minutes each week for eight weeks. And we go through the same material, but I'm there to help you jog you along and move you forward. So those are the two courses I have. But if I can come back to happiness and purpose, I think it was Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychologist who went to Auschwitz, well, who... <laughs> who ended up in Auschwitz, lost his wife, his kids, his manuscript, lost everything. The one thing he didn't lose was his purpose. He helped people. And in turn, even the guards came to him. You know, it, it, it's, it's amazing how a single human being with, his, with, a, with an attitude, with a good attitude, can turn things around in the direst of circumstances and he said, man does, man does not look for happiness. Happiness isn't, doesn't do anything for us. It's fleeting. Purpose, it's different. Having a meaning in your life changes everything. And so 
talking to people who are thinking about retirement, I would say to you, stop thinking of retirement as an end game, as a stop, right? Think of it as a transition. And transitions are difficult by their very nature, right? You're transitioning, for example, when you're an adolescent and you transitioned into the adult world, it's two different worlds. You transitioned, you left behind who you were as an adolescent, and you became a man in the working world. Well, as you reach the end of your working life, you're going to make a new transition into this post-retirement world. I won't call it retirement, this post-retirement, post-work life in which who you are is also going to go through transformation. So you can't look at retirement or post-retirement life from where you are because you're not in the right state of mind. And so the perspective of the person who moves into after-work life is going to be different. Think of a caterpillar and a butterfly. The caterpillar goes into the cocoon, the chrysalis, and breaks down. And by breaking down, I mean breaking down. You know, it turns into caterpillar juice. In our language, that would be called ego death. Who you were is now crushed and mincemeat, right? Get rid of all the certificates, all the trophies. That's not going to help you on this side of life. That's That belongs to the old one, right? Put it in the attic, storage, if you want to pay fees for storage. If you don't, get rid of them, pass them down or whatever. But you're moving into a new stage in life. You cannot carry that luggage. And by, by coming into this space of letting go of who you were, it allows you to open up to who you can become. And you can choose and select what it is or who it is you want to become. I, I put a big thing on decluttering. Decluttering your home, your wardrobe. Um, women have an easier time than this than men do, <laughs> believe it or not. But decluttering is, it liberates you. It's like shedding skins. Not that I'm alluding that we're like snakes, but you know what I mean. (laughs) It's tough to declutter and it's tough to dissociate to an extent from your past because, I mean, I'm 35, so I'm a far, I've got a long way before I were to reach that typical retirement age, so to speak, though we've challenged even if that's how I should be looking at it. But I look back at certain earlier parts of my life and it's tough to detach from some of those to an extent because that's part of my identity. And right. the way I look at some of my past things has shaped my identity so much that in an, in a way I feel as I look towards the future, I need to still associate with some of those parts of my past to maintain my purpose. And I can imagine 30 years from now, it will be even harder to do that. But one of the things I'm gathering from chatting with you, so many great lessons for people who who are reaching that prototypical retirement age, but also so many lessons for people who are who are younger, that really you need to be very conscious. I need to be very conscious about my purpose, my identity, and my career and what is giving me purpose now, because I feel like it would be easier for the next generations 
to get to the traditional age of retirement, not looking suddenly for, oh, geez, what do I do now? But having conceptualized their life in a way where you aren't looking at that retirement as necessarily a milestone where you then need to make a big pivot. But perhaps you're looking at it, as cliche as it sounds, as a journey right from the get-go, knowing that that moment isn't really going to come in the form that we expect it to. And that might cause us to live our lives in different, more meaningful ways and maybe make some pivots earlier on than we would have expected if we're realizing that we aren't getting that purpose that we hoped we would have. No, I, I agree with you, Sal. I think actually you're right, because I think your generation is more adaptable, is more resilient, and you guys have had a different trajectory compared to the boomers. And so you guys have kind of had to maneuver, evade, work through different challenges and you've evolved differently and you've had challenges much earlier and so I think for you guys it's going to be a very different proposition it's going to be more of a continuation of what you're doing and when you come to retirement the pivot is going to be different because I think it would be less radical for you guys but uh, but the only lesson from here is do what you love to do. You know, initially you might get paid less for sure. But at any time, why would you be working at jobs that don't give you meaning? Right. I mean, millions of people do. Millions of people do. And they justify it to themselves. And listen, and I'm not criticizing here because I've been there myself. I know. I've just been fortunate that I've woken up. <laughs> to recognize it you know life slaps you in the face and you wake up sometimes so even you know this is why when i wrote my other book which is called spirit of gratitude crises are opportunities right so for me that rendezvous with death for three weeks was a wake-up call and i'm incredibly grateful for it if i didn't have that i would have just continued as i was before i would have learned nothing I would have been sleepwalking through life, which is what the vast majority of people do until events compel them to change. George, you've given so much wise advice and historical context, practical advice, and really a pleasure talking with you. Where can people learn more about you and your courses? My website is georgegeorgian.com and I'm on social media as George Jurgen or Retirement Rebellion. Perfect. Well, I will put all of that in the episode notes. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with people? I do, actually. I had one sort of thing which I, I said under hypnosis when I was asked by Paul McKenna once, the, the hypnotherapist. He put me up on stage and he said, you know, who, who would you like to be? And I, for that period of time, I said, I'd like to be Cicero for today. So I went into Cicero mode, into his sandals, as it were, in toga. And he, I was asked to say, you know, what, what, what I was able to channel through, bizarrely. And I shocked myself. And what came out was, don't betray yourselves. Don't betray yourselves because of people that you love or your family. Right. I mean, we all love our families and it's amazing how we betray ourselves with this notion that because we love our family. 
And what we do is we cheat ourselves, we betray ourselves. And by doing so, that's not a great example to our family. So sometimes we have to make hard decisions, decisions that we really don't want to take because it breaks our hearts or it's going to break the heart of the people around us. But if it's the right decision, you must do it. For everyone's sake, not just yours. I absolutely love that. I'm having I'm having a child soon. And I often think about, you know, the obligations that come with that naturally. And my life's going to be very, very different. But on the same token, I think it's important for a parent and talk to me and talk to me in a couple of years. But I, I would think it's important for a parent to not lose themselves under the guise of, well, I'm giving up my life because I want the best for my child, because I would want to live a life with friends and family and with activities and other things where I'm happy and I have meaning because I would want my child to model that life and to look at an example of somebody who is still enjoying meaning out of life, not just being a parent, because I wouldn't want my child to live life thinking that their only role is just to be a parent. And yeah. That, uh, well, I, I wish I could hear you. Forty years ago, that would have helped. <laughs> well, I'm 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 pre-baby, so I might throw that all out the window unintentionally. But George Georgian, thank you so much for joining me. Check out Dare to Discover Your Purpose, and I will put George's information in the episode notes. George, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure, Zale. Much appreciated. Thank you. Mm-hmm.